last days of Anzac. Interesting letter from Private Jack McLeod. SS Manitou, at sea, presumably on the way to Egypt. Dear Mr K, I suppose you'll have seen by the papers that the Australians have left Gallipoli. It must have been a great relief to many to know the evacuation had been carried out without loss of life. It was plain sailing, so long as everything went well. But goodness only knows what would have happened had anything gone wrong at the death. The last to take leave of the Turks went early on the morning of Monday the 20th of December. After the 18th, the authorities we have since heard were quite prepared to lose the whole of the 5th Brigade. Sounds well, does it not? Makes out think he is someone. Good job we got no hint of it before leaving. They had Madden and I out scouting the last couple of nights on Gallipoli. It's very interesting work and takes one into a lot of out-of-the-way places, bad enough going into some of them in peacetime without troubling about war. The last night out was pretty strenuous. We were chasing lights all over the island. We weren't in the blues. They put too much water amongst it here. The sergeant with us that night knows every corner of the peninsula. Any suspicious light, he is after like a shot. Just on midnight, we were watching the Gurkhas leaving. They didn't waste any time either, mostly at the double. We observed distinct signalling on a hill overlooking the beach, so off we had to go to look for trouble. The sergeant gave us instructions to fire at the next flash. On several patrols, our instructions were fire on sight and ask questions afterwards. The next flash never came, but we soon had an explanation. We met an Imperial captain and lieutenant on their way down, and it turned out that they had observed signalling about the same place, so went up and signalled to someone on the pier to see if they could locate the position of the signalling. They got a shock to learn how near they had been to locating something else. Seeing we'd both been sniping lately, I don't think we both would have missed. This sniping business is not all it's cracked up to be. It's alright till the Turks discover the position, then one needn't expect too much change. How they discovered our position is a bit mysterious, I'll come to that later however. There is no doubt the Turks evidently knew everything was not as it should be during the last couple of days. The night our first lot went away, they shelled the pier almost continuously. They hit everything, however, but the pier. Madden and I were right on top of a big ravine overlooking the pier and had a magnificent view of the fireworks. A huge store was burning on the beach and that added grandeur to the scene. One could hear the Turkish guns go off, then a whistling sound through the air, followed by the splash and explosion as the shell hit the water. We were resting in the quartermaster's store on top of the ravine during our four hours off, two on and four off patrol. Instead of going to sleep, we watched the efforts of Johnny Turk to hit the pier. Each shell crept nearer and nearer until we had decided the next was a winner. It went past. Then Mr Turk got erratic and of course that saved the pier. I wouldn't have missed that sight for a lot of the 20th battalion went off in four lots the first Saturday evening, the second Sunday evening, third Sunday night and the fourth at 3.30am on Monday. During the last three nights, the firing had been cut down considerably. In fact, a silent demonstration had been given at different times those nights. For two or three hours, not a shot was fired. The Turks did not appear to trouble much about this affair. And in fact, they cut down their fire a bit too. The third night, their prey left in a quiet and orderly manner. Only 40 men were holding a position like one which had previously been held by a whole battalion. They were mostly old hands and those who had experience in warfare. The 40 from the 20th were holding Walker's Ridge and were the last to leave the firing line. Rifles were actually fired from the trenches after the men had gone. Then the mine under the position was fired and up she went. Rifles were left loaded with fuses etc attached. If the fuses didn't fire them then the mine explosion certainly would. There were a number of interesting toys left behind for inquisitive Turkish hands, only these toys have a nasty habit of hitting back. On the 20th battalion going to the trenches, Madden and I were given a job as snipers. Our position was out in front of the firing line in the face of a hill with a splendid view of the Turkish position. We weren't overworked either, 8am till 4.30pm, but of course we always ran the risk of being called out to patrol work at 9. 
To get in our positions, we had to crawl through a narrow tunnel from the firing line, slide down another short one, with a drop of about four feet to the bottom. Our room was about six foot by 2.5 foot and about four foot high, with our loopholes in front. The loopholes made of steel were roughly about 18 by 18 and an inch thick. The rifle hole was about 2.5 by 5. There must be a bit of the Irishman about me, I fancy. I've just gone over my description of the loophole and have come to the conclusion that the hole is made of nothing. The loophole surroundings are of steel. We enjoyed good sport for a long time and it was only on the last day on Gallipoli they found us. We'd been blazing away to our heart's content until about 11am that morning when, without the slightest warning, a bullet hit the edge of Madden's loophole, followed by another and yet another. Then they simply rained the bullets into both places. When they eased off, we tried to bluff them by firing out again. That made them worse than ever. They turned our posse upside down, outside in, and played havoc with it generally. The first shot is always the worst. Madden is decidedly lucky. It got the sight of his loophole, otherwise it would have most certainly accounted for him. We haven't too much cover either. Madden got below the level of the holes and I against the shoulder of the wall between the two holes. It didn't take us long to make ourselves scarce when we got half a chance. Being hit in a tender spot when getting out of the hole was the chief trouble. We got out alright, however reported to the OC and got a job throwing away all the spare bombs. I may be able to tell you later where we put them. It was almost impossible to hit me through my own loophole. My chief trouble was getting a ricky off the other. A few days previous to this, I had as close a go as I wished for. I was filling my water bottle at the entrance to the tunnel and had Madden's tea and my own inside the tunnel. All of a sudden there was a flash, then a terrific bang. I dropped the water bottle and Dixie at the sound of the explosion. Had a look to see if my limbs were still a part of me, then made for another tunnel in case any more were to follow. The shell came right through the tunnel and appeared to burst right under my feet. It actually lobbed about two yards from where I was standing. All the damage it did was to cover me in dirt from head to foot, twist the cork of the water bottle and cover our teas in dirt. These shells are known as coal boxes and the effect of their explosion is purely local. I don't want to get any closer in case the effect might be more than local. Had it been a 75, what a mess it would have made. We travelled per HMS Mars to Lemnos where we spent about a fortnight. On the Mars we had a feed which we enjoyed more than any other for some considerable time back. We had coffee, salmon, bread, new and butter and jam. So much did we eat we had to simply follow the habits of the blackfellow after meals and sleep it off. Life in Lemnos is not too bad, parade 9 to 11.30 and 1.30 to 4pm, half holiday Wednesday and Saturday, all day Sunday, except of course when we were duty company. There are a few small villages around the harbour. This is a splendid harbour and simply alive with warships, where we can procure almost anything in the eating line, but at the natives price. We visited one of the out of bonds villages the last week we were there. It's much the same as the others and we can't understand why it should be so placed. We had a squint in at one of the churches and there were heaps of skulls and bones, the result of a Turkish raid some years ago. We enjoyed a very quiet Christmas. Thanks to our Australian friends and our own pockets, we had a rather good time. We had a big shopping expedition on Christmas Eve and returned to Camp Leyden with everything that's good for Christmas. The government fare for the historic day was tea and bacon for breakfast, stew, that's what the cooks call it for dinner, tea and rice for tea. We made the breakfast all right, we had eggs with our purchases. I cooked them Christmas morning, so we had eggs and bacon. Not bad for a feed in the army. Each man was presented with a Christmas billy from the Presbyterian Women's League of Australia. And there was also a pudding between two from some other Australian society. My billy was just the thing, containing writing paper and envelopes, 12 cigars, eight packets of cigarettes, two tins tobacco, a few pencils and a tin of insect bane. And believe me, the latter came in very handy. We certainly require it here.
I sometimes feel like getting after them with a stock whip. I'm sorry you won't get any of the shortbread this year. It's been dispatched all right, and I suppose I'll likely get it when we get to Egypt. I'll think of you all when I'm eating it. I'm doing pretty well this Christmas. I scored this pad from Sydney the other day. No excuse now for not riding. A Christmas billy is always on the way from someplace, so I can almost feel myself bilious already. We had a football match on New Year's Day. Australia versus Kitchener's Army. Kay's Army won handsomely 6-0. They outplayed us in every point. And in fact, they have forgotten more about the game than ever we knew. They had four First Division English players in their ranks, and didn't they lead us a dance? I never played harder and with less effect. Some of our lot were man enough to ask for another game. I was not having any, but I was willing enough to act as a referee or something else with less work in it. We've just got orders to pack up again. We are within a few miles of Alexandria and can congratulate ourselves on missing submarines. Please send me the results of the Corindai and Sydney shows. I hope you have as much success this year as last. We have a few enemy subjects on board. Whether they are spies or merely intern subjects, no one knows, but they all appear to have plenty of dough. Kindest regards to Mrs Kennedy and the children and all friends in Corindai. Tell Bill Curtis and Fred Elsley I'm expecting letters from them. Expect to meet Bully Swale, provided he is out of hospital in a day or two. Yours very sincerely, Jack McLeod. Mr James Harrison received the following letter from Fred Furman. 3rd London General Hospital, Wandsworth, London, SW. Dear Jim, just a line to let you know that I'm not kicking too hard at present. I suppose you know that I've been wounded pretty badly in both my legs. I've had the misfortune to lose part of one of them, my left leg. But never mind, could have been worse. Some poor fellows have lost their lives. I'm sending you a book about bees. It is very interesting. I hope you'll like it. You'll be able to teach your bees how to make honey. Hey, what? How are all the people in Corindai getting along? I suppose that some of the boys that went to the war from there have returned home again by this. I've been through a pretty rough time since I left Corindai. I got in the way of a machine gun in the Lonesome Pine Charge. It was the sight of a lifetime. To see our boys charging line after line. Shot down, but still another to take its place. We took four trenches before we stopped. My company was the first to go over the parapets. Out of 150 of us, only four got into the first Turkish trench. Then there was some fun, I can tell you. Four of us trying to fight a trench full of Turks. Luckily, reinforcements arrived in time. Not before we were all wounded. I was only wounded slightly in the right leg. I still kept on with the others when they came, but about 10 o'clock that night I got it pretty badly again in both legs. I had to drag myself back to our lines on my stomach. Pretty hard work, I can tell you. At least pretty painful, anyhow. It was worth it to see our boys fight. They fought like tigers, shells and bullets flying all around them, but they took no more notice than if they were buzzing around. You'd see some fellas get hit. Down they would go, only to get on their feet and struggle on again. Takes a pretty hard bullet to stop an Australian. The worst thing I think I ever saw was about 10 o'clock that night. A bushfire was started by some of the shells, which swept over one of the gullies where a lot of our boys were lying wounded. You could hear the poor fellows screaming in pain. But I was too badly hurt to go to anyone's help, and anyone that was not wounded was too busily engaged with the Turks, who were counter-attacking, to help them. They were all burnt. Kindly remember me to all the boys, Jack and George, and the Sullings, and Mr and Mrs Woods if they're still there. Hoping you're still doing well with your business, and wishing you a prosperous new year. Margaret Boyle of Blackville has received a letter from her brother Harry, dated Heliopolis, 20th January, in which he says, I received your letter on my arrival back from the Dardanelles. We all look forward to the mail more than anything else, and there is a great commotion when the mail arrives. I suppose you were surprised to hear that the Turks beat us on the peninsula. It was terribly disappointing to have to leave it unconquered, especially after losing so many valuable lives. One thing, the old Turk can't say he pushed us off, as we were off before he knew anything about the move. We haven't got the 12th Regiment reformed yet, but we are still in hopes that it will be, 
and there are a lot working for it. We are now in a good camp, about five minutes walk from Heliopolis, which is a lively place in these times. It is about 20 minutes from Cairo and is noted for its beautiful buildings. It is quite a young city, built in the last 10 years, and all the buildings are white and nearly all the same size and design, giving it a very uniform appearance. The shops and eating places are generally nice and clean, but oh, the streets are horribly dirty and quite out of harmony with the business places. Heliopolis is be a credit to its people if they kept its streets clean, but of course, it's the Egyptian way. There are several picture palaces, which are free to all. They are just open-air gardens with plenty of tables and chairs provided. The boys swarm into these gardens in thousands at night and sit down and drink beer and look at the pictures. Dozens of Egyptian kids pester you all the time, wanting to sell you matches or cigarettes, peanuts, etc. Every Egyptian is a trader almost from the time he or she can walk. I understand this is the law of the country. Well, Margaret, I have had a surprise while I've been writing these letters. Victory has come on the scene. I have been looking for him and he has been looking for me these last three weeks, and we have been camped only 22 yards apart all the time. I heard that his company had gone away, but he tells me he has been in the hospital with mumps and was unable to go at the time. Unfortunately, I will only be able to see him for a few hours, as he is going away early in the morning to join his company, which is a good many miles from here. I will try and get him into the 12th if we are formed up again. He looks real well now. I think soldiering has done him good. It is just 12 months to the day since I enlisted and I will always look upon that day as one of my best day's work. I don't know when we'll be going away again. For my part, I wish we were away now. Camp seems rather monotonous after being on active service. I haven't seen Jack Pangilla yet. I hear his squadron is coming to this camp shortly. I don't think I told you that the Marquette which took us to the Dardanelles was afterwards torpedoed and a good many Red Cross nurses went down with her. The big passenger boat Persia was sunk recently just off the Egyptian coast and a large number of women and children were drowned. Fondest love to all at home. Private JHF Elliot writes home under date 31st of the 12th 15th. We had a good trip over. There's not much to tell you about this place, only that it is as dirty as a rubbish heap and holds more diseases than Prince Alfred Hospital. The natives are the filthiest wretches it's possible to find and the boot has to be used pretty liberally to get rid of the beggars. You'll be surprised to learn I was cook for our boys on Christmas Day where we were keeping guard over the Turkish prisoners for a few days. But we had to leave on account of the mumps. I suppose that by this time, all the eligible single men in Karindai have enlisted. I've seen all the Karindai boys that have been at the front. Tom Keogh and Clive Strauber here. They may be going to the front in a fortnight and I'll try and get away with them. Once or twice on the way over, the tucker was pretty high and we had to bury it at sea. The lads fixed up some verses to the tune of I Love a Lassie. Here they are. I love the Persic, the smellful troopship Persic. If you lived on her, you'd think you were in hell. We met her in November, hope to leave her in December, so the crew will soon have her to themselves. We get up in the morning, find the light horse has no awning, so we drill out in a blooming, blinding sun. The crew take charge with their hoses, squirting water on our toeses. And this is what you hear from everyone. We love the Persic. Lavender box, old Persic. You can tell her in the stream by the smell. The skipper, he's a bonzer. Who could do nothing wrong, sir? Skipper, we like you well. We like the Persic. We'd hate to leave the Persic. With her rabbit stew and awful mutton smell. That confronts us every Sunday. Damn sight worse on ever Monday. You can prove it on the poop deck by the yell. The bread was good yesterday, but the blasted fish on Friday, it's enough to nearly knock you off your perch. The tea you've heard is rotten, so the beer we had to cotton. But the damn canteen has left us in a lurch. 
We love the Persic, champion troopship Persic. She's painted fore and aft just like a yacht. We tell you on the level that she travels like the devil. Persic, you old stink pot. Here are some more about ourselves. We drill all day in the blazing sun on the burning desert sands, but we don't mind much when the day is done. Though we curse the heat and the heavy guns, it's all for our own dear ones. Our land of freedoms over the seas, our homes and the bright blue skies, the sweeping plains and the dear gum trees. We would give our lives and souls for these and we'll fight till the last man dies. Who lives if England dies? Who dies if England lives?